Hey, everybody. It's Michelle, and I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication, and you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part, if that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can begin, then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas. And they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 ASHA CEUs. So (sighs) thank you for being a part of the first bite journey that led to chasing the swallow. And be sure to check out speechtherapypd.com for the 13.5 ASHA CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and a guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. We are like five weeks away from ASHA and ASHA in New Orleans. I'm so happy to be going back. Fair warning, if you order a Bloody Mary, 
they're like twice as strong as they are in any other city. So there is your warning, courtesy of Aaron Ford and I and Lasha this year. But today's guest is like all geared up for Asha 2022. And I am in awe that she's on because y'all, we have none other than the Dr. Emily Zimmerman. She's a speech language pathologist and associate professor in the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders and the Associate Chair for Research and Innovation at Northeastern University. She directs the Speech and Neurodevelopment Lab. And the main goal of that lab is to enhance suck, swallow, respiration, and neurodevelopmental outcomes. They feed the babies. They do the research on how to safely and effectively feed the babies that we get to be sponges on and then implement in the field. And if you tuned in, I guess, a month ago and you got to listen to the lovely Natalie Douglas where we were talking about bridging research to practice, this is that moment. This is, we have a researcher on to talk to us about what this looks like and what they're learning so that we can implement this into practice. And then it all goes to hell in a handbasket in the field. We can say, hey, we have a problem here because we don't have access to this here. Help. Right? This is that moment. So Dr. Emily Zimmerman, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me and for the wise wisdom on the Bloody Marys. (laughs) Yes, right? Oh my God, I had one. It was like, I don't know how to walk right in this moment. So we're just going to sit down for an hour. (laughs) That's awesome. That was was great. And that was the day before we lectured. So the lectures were definitely amazing at Lasha this year. (laughs) Perfect. I love it. Yes. Okay, so you're up at in Boston, and because I apparently live under a rock, I didn't realize that your I thought your mascot was a Boston Terrier because it has a paw print, but it is not. So, can you talk to us a little bit about your lab and your program there? I would love to. So, we are not the Boston Terriers; we are the Northeastern Huskies. So, yes, I know we're Huskies, and occasionally we have Huskies meandering on campus. So we're a puppy friendly campus, which, you know, the students love. So, you know, I've been at Northeastern now nearly, it's nine years. I was going to say nearly 10 years. I started in 2013. And so my time in the speech and neurodevelopment lab has really been focused on kind of what we might consider typical. So, you know, a lot of my prior work before I got to Northeastern was focused on special populations, really trying to understand the development of feeding with preterm infants, you know, and different infants with who are experiencing comorbidities. And over time, when I, when I first got to Northeastern, you know, my question was, you know, we know that these infants who are struggling to feed, we're trying to get them to this landmark, but what is that landmark and what is that target? And I think that really kind of switched my thinking as to kind of what we're doing in the lab right now. And so we really look at infant oromotor development. So when I'm talking about that, I'm talking about non-nutritive suck and sucking on a pacifier, nutritive suck, oral feeding outcomes, as well as vocalization. So we collect psychosocial, physiologic, genetic, and environmental factors and look at how those factors influence those oromotor outcomes. And we do this along qualitative and quantitative metrics to really try to get a broad scope of the factors that can impact these important feeding metrics. I like that you include environmental. 
Yeah. And it's been a important and kind of a new area for me since I've been at Northeastern and, and a very exciting one. Yeah. Okay. So you background, when I was in grad school, and for those of you that have a few gray hairs and a little bit of Botox in the forehead like myself, we were taught non-nutritive suck didn't have a place in PO, like acquisition. That's what I was taught. I remember them saying, you know, if you give a pacifier, then you're going to have nipple confusion and those lovely misinformations. And it was, I can't remember whose course I took. Might have been Beverly Manziola's. It was a while ago. And she was like, no, absolutely. We have a place for non nutritive suck. And she started talking about pacifier dips and then the medicine pacifiers. And I mean, things that, as my grandma would say, the old wives' tales, they knew what they were doing. And now we're seeing that in the literature. So for me, even being around as long as I've been around, I mean, I'm old. I graduated in 09. So that's a huge shift in the literature from what we were taught. Also, we were taught grad classes by adult dysphagia professors, professors that did not have any experience in the world of pediatrics. So that was also kind of a bit of a disconnect. That makes me wonder, do you guys have, does your program have a specific peds dysphagia course like outside of the adult course? So this last spring, I taught an intercession course on pediatric feeding from an interdisciplinary view. And that course was really well received. And I think the challenge that we've had and many other programs have, in addition to finding the expert in this area, even those who have the expert in this area was really trying has been trying to kind of find where it fits within our program. So we do talk about it you know, much like all the other programs within the larger dysphagia course. But I was able to offer that kind of extra bonus, which was a two-week intensive course, and the students really loved it. So I think we'd like to keep offering those opportunities at Northeastern. Because as you've mentioned, you've made some really important points. The pendulum has shifts and swings. With the pacifiers, it's really tied to the notion of nipple confusion. So that it has really aligned itself with something that if you are a breastfeeding supporter, then you don't use a pacifier. So that's kind of been the mindset, you know, so. Have you ever survived an infant teething? Because if you have survived an infant teething, honey, buy the damn plug. It's (laughs) the greatest gift. If you want to pee by yourself and you have a teething infant, go team, get a pacifier. Exactly. Well, so I have, I'm also a mother, which is something that, you know, really provides insights into the whole feeding development in and of itself. But even my girls are three years apart. And when I had my first daughter, they gave me a pacifier when she was born and they're like, you know, do you want it offered? And I said, yes. And then, you know, like it was a critical decision. And then my second daughter, three years later, they were like, we don't have pacifiers. You know, that's not part of our breastfeeding friendly initiatives. And I was like, well, you're speaking to the wrong person because I brought my own. So here I am with like a bag full of pacifiers, you know, and so what we know, and that's the thing is, I've actually written two, one commentary and one state-of-the-art review in the Journal of Perinatology about this topic is that when babies have feeding challenges, the tendency is to blame the artificial bottle or pacifier. And really- Instead of the underlying- Exactly. Breakdown of physiology. Yeah. And go with what's easy. You know, I think some of my arguments about 
non-nutritive suck and nutritive suck and how they compare and contrast. In no way do I say, if you're good at non-nutritive suck, you are on your way to 100% PO. It's really that if you're not good at non-nutritive suck, you're really, really going to have these additional nutritive suck challenges. So why not let the baby have this practice when it's safe? So why can't non-nutritive suck be our first line of defense in the feeding challenge? So we know it sucks, swallow, breathe. You know, we know we need to coordinate all of these tasks. The babies are practicing breathing. They should be practicing non-nutritive suck. And then when those two systems are well-coordinated, then we can add the swallow bit. So I always say that non-nutritive suck is almost like doing soccer skills for the ultimate game of the soccer, the soccer game, right? So you're not going to just go onto the field, play the game, never having developed some of these skills. Yes, the skills are not the same as the game. There's so many more different levels of complexities and factors. It might rain. It might, you know, the grass might be a different type of grass, you know, or the ball might be a different kind of ball than you're used to dealing with. So there's going to be a lot of external factors, right? But at least you have this skill set to kind of build from. The other thing we know is that healthy babies, full-term healthy babies who have no underlying feeding conditions can adapt their suck pattern to any bottle, breast, finger, pacifier, and should do so accordingly. So when you're switching back and forth, there should be no challenge. The challenge really lies in these babies who have, you know, underlying conditions or developmental challenges surrounding feeding, where if you're switching every single time, how is the baby to know kind of how to get this coordination under wrap? So yeah, it's really tightly aligned to the breast is best mentality. And, you know, I think the pendulum on that has really also swung to fed is best when, you know, babies weren't getting the nourishment they needed, right? Fed is fed is fed, whether it be oral or alternative or a combination of all, I want a baby nourished so that they can grow. Like that's our job. Yes. And that's the thing is it's not, you know, just because we use a lot of pacifiers in our studies, we absolutely support breastfeeding and whatever is best for the family. So the other thing too is in our studies, you know, so in nearly all of our research studies, we have babies suck on our instrumented pacifier. And I can kind of tell you more about that in detail, but, you know, people who are starting to collaborate with me or, you know, people at different sites will say, or my students will be like, I don't know if we should even do this, enroll this family. The mom said the baby will not suck, hates pacifiers. And then at the time of the study, the baby does great. So it's, you know, one-time exposure to a three-minute, you know, pacifier test isn't going to like alter the experiences the infant has either. How do you get the measurements in the pacifier? And can I ask what kind of pacifier you use or what do you vary your pacifiers? So for most of our studies, we use the Soothe, that green Soothe pacifier, and we attach it to a pressure transducer system that was created in my laboratory and that attaches to a EDI instruments lab chart software. And then we, we created a macro that helps us to detect the non-nutritive suck bursts. And in these waveforms, we're able to look at the strength of the infant suck by looking at the peak amplitude. We can measure the frequency of the suck bursts. We can learn more about how many cycles are occurring per burst, how many of these bursts occur per minute, cycles per minute, and how long these bursts are. And so it's really, you know, I liken it to almost like an EKG. It's like a quick 
EKG of your suck sensory motor capacity. And why this is important, you know, I could speak on this topic forever, but there's so many reasons from my perspective as to why this is important. In utero, the babies are performing this sucking behavior as early as 15, 16 weeks. And for preterm infants, that experience stops. So when you're born too soon, you are no longer getting that kind of rich practice that you were getting otherwise. So now you're dealing with a model of deprivation for this skill. And this skill really, because this is a brainstem mediated task, allows you to really understand what is happening almost along the entire brainstem neuroaxis to is the CPG, the central pattern generator that controls this non-nutritive suck receiving this information? Is it easily modifiable? How is it coming back and forth? So you're getting this really potent form of information from the baby that a baby that can really do not much else. So non-nutritive suck is one of the first motor acts a baby can perform that gives us really insights onto the brain. So, you know, we've started, when I said we were doing environmental health research, we're starting to look at, can we use non-nutritive suck as an index as to what was happening in utero? So we're, we have a, a host of studies looking at how maternal exposure to chemicals like phthalates or air pollution can actually alter the infant's non-nutritive suck soon after birth. So while this is being you know, practiced and created in utero, you also have these other exposures that are interacting. So I see non-nutritive suck as like this first metric that, yes, it relates to oral feeding, and that's super important because we care about that as a major milestone. But it also tells us a little bit about the story from the pregnancy as well as the story beyond feeding milestones. So how does this relate to speech? How does this relate to other neurodevelopmental outcomes? I've had the pleasure of working with, I am a clinician, I'm not a researcher, but I've had the pleasure of working with little ones that have genetic conditions where they're missing part of their cerebellum because of like cath pick or where we've had a brainstem CBA or an IVH that started higher up but went into the brainstem. I mean, And watching them struggle and be going from like NPO status to like slow, slowly we were introducing pacifier dips of like express breast milk or, you know, whatever their formula was. And it's really empowering to see this. And folks, I am a CLC, but I'm a CLC who, again, it's fed is fed is fed. So if we're expressing breast milk or if they can lay on the breast for comfort while they're taking a non-nutritive suck or they're taking alternate forms of nourishment, we're also there to help empower the caregiver to bond with their child that they may or may not have known when the little one was coming was going to have some differences and some challenging challenges around feeding. So we also got to meet them where they are. So going at it with grace. And you really just spoke to something I think is so critically important is how can you use non-nutritive suck is, especially on a pacifier, it's a tool. It's a tool in your bag. So how can you use it to the most optimal way? Like you just said, give the baby a pacifier while just sitting on the mom's naked chest, pairing pacifier with the breast, with olfaction, with rhythmic movement. And you know, we know that all these neurons that are firing together will wire together and that that kind of multimodal feedback is really, really effective. So 
you know, I think you hit the nail on the head, just making sure the experience is the best for both the mother and the infant and that the ultimate outcome is the growth, right? Yes. Okay. Wait, your rhythmic movement comment triggered a neuron. Okay. So y'all, when I resigned from the university to take off because Dr. Zimmerman, you don't know me from Adam, but up until December of last year, I spent 18 months at a setting up the very first pediatric feeding and swallowing clinic in South Carolina at a university at Francis Marion. And I was the clinic coordinator securing practicums for two cohorts every semester, teaching three grad classes and treating 20 PFD patients a week. (laughs) So yeah, I resigned for mental health. They're lovely. They're lovely humans. I needed staff and we did not have that in the budget. And I needed to also be home with my family and not like exhausted on the couch crying. So like, it's fine. We're moving on. I digress. But I went to work for Irene Ingram, who is this very well-known, at least here in the Southeast, occupational therapist who has, she's 68. She's been an OT and her specialty is rhythmic movements, especially for these patients that had trauma in utero, whether that be toxins, exposures, stroke, caregiver trauma, but she teaches them how to put those rhythmic movements in. So our babies that are preemies that are born, that are going through withdrawals, they're missing that those rhythmic movements are how we move through the birth canal that jump starts and ignites so many reflexes. That rhythmic movement of being able to crawl from the womb up the chest to latch at the breast. There's so many innate reflexes that occupational therapists can rattle off to you like it's on the back of their hand written somewhere. And SLPs are like, we have a central pattern generator for suck. Say what? Because Most of us did not get that in grad school, but rhythmic movements and teaching those rhythmic movements, it reconnects and tries to reestablish that neural pathway. So I'm describing this as I'm rocking, but when you see a new mommy rocking and holding the baby, that's an example of it's innate. We just Actually, my dissertation work looked at the impact of vestibular inputs to preterm infants and with Dr. Barlow, who was my PhD mentor, we created this chair called the Vestibuglide. And it was like, it was really specific. I mean, and this is going to bring you back in the day when I talk about the otoliths versus semicircular canals to like hearing science class or AMP. And my students always have to hear about my dissertation. So it lives on, right? (laughs) But yeah, so Vestibuglide purpose was that when you think about the hierarchical emergence of the senses, that they occur and are kind of mature at different time points in utero. So it's not that, and the last sense to emerge is vision, right? So, you know, these preemies that we're seeing can't see that well, and they're really kind of starting to have that sense emerge. But depending on how preterm you are, you're entering this kind of hierarchy at different time points. And all of the animal models really point to if you have too much exposure in one sense that's not mature yet, it's going to come at the expense of other senses. So it's really interesting. And I think, so that really got me to thinking about what are some early emerging senses and vestibular is one of them. And you can only imagine the amount of vestibular inputs the infants are getting in utero in this you know, fluid-filled medium 
And then when you're born too soon, that completely ends. And the only stimulation you're getting tends to be noxious. And so you're right, that rhythmicity is so innate. And what I always say when I give the talk on this kind of sensory emergence and sensory therapies for preterm infants is that, you know, when we know the recipe from the womb, we should try to replicate it. But when we don't know the recipe from the womb and there's no science there, the guiding principle should really be what would the caregiver be doing? What would be the innate thing between, you know, the caregiver, the first person that's going to be holding that baby and the baby? And you're right. The gentle rocking is so innate to anyone holding a baby. And why is that? You know, and it's because these connections have like, for example, the vestibular has rich connectivity to the respiratory system. And you'll see that breath cycle slow. You'll see that breath. It's a direct, as you describe this, I start thinking, I have an older special needs brother-in-law, Uncle Maddie, and Uncle Maddie's 45, has a microcephaly from a virus, not the Zika virus, but a virus during my mother-in-law's second trimester. She got sick. So we have cortical vision impairment, microcephaly, autism, CP, and, you know, whole host of things, right? But when Matthew gets excited or when he's experiencing nervousness or he's just totally content and in the zone, he rocks and the man rocks through the carpet. So they have to put like extra pads under his preferred chairs because he'll just wear a hole right in the carpet. But he gets, you'll watch him rock and his respirations change. It's that innate rhythmicity even there. And it's so funny where you can hear his rocking chair anywhere in the house. And that's a big house. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So talk to us through what factors influence when, I mean, I know we were rattling them off at the beginning, like environment, but walk us through love. Yeah. So it's been so interesting for me to add these additional factors into our studies and to learn more from them. So we know, for example, that timing matters when you're assessing non-nutritive sex. So throughout our studies, we were able to kind of pool all the non-nutritive sex samples together and see, you know, is what we're seeing at the beginning of when you first put a pacifier in different than what we see at the very end of your non-nutritive sex sample. And what we found is that really the non-nutritive sex, certain aspects of it really kind of degrades over time. So For example, you'll have fewer cycles per burst, a lower amplitude, you know, if you're observing the baby at, you know, after they're 40 bursts in or two or three minutes in into their non-nutritive suck. So this is important because if you're a clinician and, you know, you're entering a baby's NICU suite and you see they're already sucking on a pacifier, you might be observing them at kind of their worst or their more kind of degraded suck. So if you're doing because they're like falling asleep or they're just potentially yeah i mean the underlying mechanisms as to why kind of you know remain unknown it's likely fatigue it's likely that you can't keep up that many cycles within a burst with a really high amplitude so some of these factors kind of interplay with each other but it depends on kind of the situation in which you're viewing the child but i think it's really important to really be mindful. Okay, here I am putting the pacifier in for the first time. Here's the data I'm collecting. And here it is a few minutes later. How has it changed? What is, you know, the data telling me differently? We know that the pacifier type matters. Like I said earlier, these full-term infants tend to be able to bounce back and forth between all these different types. But these babies who are having challenges, you know, I will first and foremost say when you're talking about bottle nipples, when you're talking about pacifier nipples, 
the manufacturers, you know, really have a wide array of different mechanical aspects to them. So it's very strange, like even within a one brand, you'll have, you know, a pacifier that's seven times stiffer than another one. And, you know, there's really no kind of rhyme or reason why from the manufacturer, but our data shows that certain pacifiers, you know, are illicit, maybe more suck from the infant than other ones. And so if you're working on latch, you know, you might want a certain type of pacifier. If, you know, the baby has a low amplitude, you might want a more compliant pacifier like the Suvi. So the pacifier type matters. And, you know, I know it's something that we tend to do a lot in our field of pediatric feeding of switching and trying to see what is the best. But I also caution that because, you know, the trial and error approach can also come at the expense of the child where, you know, maybe they finally understand kind of how to coordinate with that one and then we're switching again. So that's what, sorry, I had an allergist on a couple years ago and he said the exact same thing about formula changes. If you change the formulas too quickly, like three days in, the body hasn't had a time to adjust and we have to just give it time. So that, yes, sorry. That's oh, important. completely. Yeah. So the timing matters, the type matters. Some of the psychosocial factors that we found have been really interesting. So we started, I work with a professor at Northeastern, Dr. Rachel Rogers, and she does a lot of body image and eating behavior research. Okay. Eating behavior. What is her name? Rachel Rogers. She's amazing. And we started working together and she does a lot of, you know, body image from a different kind of, you know, I guess I've, I've really learned a lot about, you know, the terms that she uses in her field and she's an applied psychology versus kind of my initial understanding of terms. And so, you know, she studies more maternal feeding and eating and I study infant feeding. So we kind of were like, how can we align? And we started a group of studies where we've included some of her questionnaires into our work and it's been really eye opening. So for example, mothers who have kind of poor body image tend to kind of really have different or lower breastfeeding duration and different breastfeeding intentions. A lot of the work has surrounded the decisions surrounding breastfeeding, but we've also expanded the work to think about the decisions that mothers are having with even how much milk to put in the bottle. And, you know, I think when we ask parents about our particularly the breastfeeding mother or a caregiver, you know, the view on, you know, the questionnaires, things like, how often do I think about my thighs? You know, how often do I do this and that? And it can be body dissatisfaction along the spectrum, you know, and the, those with the kind of worst dissatisfaction tend to breastfeed less and also be very hyper aware and worried about their child's future weight which impacts, again, how you're going to be feeding your own child. And so I think that has a lot of cultural implications too. So, you know, what are the cultural norms surrounding body image and eating and feeding? And, you know, sadly in this country, we've kind of taken host of the postpartum period as this race to see who can get fit the fastest. And why? Exactly. Just, I'm sorry. It took your body nine months to grow that. It's going to take you a boatload longer because, honey, this giving birth is the closest you come to dying while you're living. And that was a direct quote from my first nanny who was like, let it be. Eat the French fries, drink the Coke, and just relax and let your body recover. Also, 
she did encourage me to maybe eat less cheeseburgers, but like <laughs> at the time, like cheeseburgers were my comfort food. Go team. <laughs> well, right. And that's the thing is, I think it's, you know, for me, I remember anything that I could eat with one hand. I'm like cheese sticks, <laughs> and, like anything that like granola bar, because I would be like doing, you know, breastfeeding, holding like, you know, on the go with the, my other hand. So I was like, if I can just find a bunch of one handed foods, I'm like, what? You know, just strange. There's like a rite of passage where you're like baby wearing and whatever you're eating falls on your kid's head. Yes. And you know, you're a real mom when you just like lick it off the kid's head because oh, yeah. you're so hungry. Oh, <laughs> yes. No, I completely agree. And I think that experience is so different for every woman or every caregiver. And I think that sadly, again, like our culture has really taken hold of this fit pregnancy, fit mom. And then my biggest worry is that and biggest piece that I think we're really missing in the research, as well as the practice, is how this deep psychosocial relationship with food that the caregivers have affects the child. It manifests. I was going to say this manifests big time because I can't tell you the amount of time I've gone in for four and five-year-olds, especially five-year-old little girls whose caregivers have an eating disorder on like the DSM-5 category. And it's manifesting in their young daughters. And I'm like, you don't need me. We need a family counselor. And there's one in particular that I have partnered with. And like, you know, touch it, kiss it, lick it till the cows come home. But that's a psychosocial, that's a DSM situation. Yes. Exactly. And so if we're, you know, giving you know, our, if we have these underlying challenges and issues with surrounding food, it's going to change what first foods we're offering, when we're offering them, how we're offering them. And then we also have to remember that a lot of the infants that we're working with, you know, were former preemies. So these parents are also hyper-focused on the need for weight gain. So that's something that, you know, at some point, you know, how you're talking about food, how you're eating food and how you're describing food really impacts So that collaboration has been really important for me to think about the mother. And I think that was something that really the mother, again, or caregiver or father, whoever is that person, you know, first interacting with the child and interacting with the child for the first six months, the volitional person making these decisions. And, you know, I had spent so much time on the physiology, like how is the non-nutritive suck waveform? Tell me everything there. But the next piece of it is who's the person offering the bottle? What is their experiences? What are the psychosocial factors influencing that? Other things that are important are siblings. So, you know, if you have more than one child, you know, your comfort level with your second child and feeding, you're so much more calm. You understand the process. The breastfeeding is easier. You know, all of these important factors play a role. And then a lot of the environmental health work really was another factor that is kind of novel to this space and a really exciting partnership for me too. And this work is really in collaboration with people at Northeastern, people at the University of Michigan, University of Georgia, and the University of Puerto Rico. So we have this, I'm a part of a center called Protect as well as ECHO. So Protect is a program that is, I don't want to use too much jargon here. Use the jargon and then just translate. We need it. (laughs) Yeah. So Protect is basically called the acronym for the Puerto Rico test site for exploring contamination. And this is an 
and National Institute of Environmental Health, NIEHS, program. So the NIH, basically the environmental health part of the NIH funds this program. And the goal of this program in Puerto Rico is to really see was, is there something in the air? Is there something in the water? Is, you know, what is happening that is making historically the rate of preterm birth was higher in Puerto Rico. It's more equivalent to the mainlands now, but it's like, what is happening? So when I first got to Northeastern, I sent an email, I read about this study and it, it was like, the outcome is preterm birth, you know, are kind of ending there. And so I was really curious to see if they had found links between the environmental exposures in Puerto Rico and feeding. And so then I started working with this group of epidemiologists, civil environmental health engineers, and scientists. And we started adding the non-nutritive suck device and really used it as an early index of the central nervous system integrity. So we do that in mother infant cohorts in Puerto Rico. And what we have found is that if mothers have higher exposures to things like phthalates or phenols or, you know, things that you can find in plastics during their pregnancy, the infant has an altered non-nutritive suck. And, you know, we're trying to kind of put all of these exposures together because we know you're not just exposed to just, you know, phthalates in isolation or phenols in isolation, you're exposed to a mixture of things. And so we're trying to put these together to learn more, but it's been a really interesting way to think of non-nutritive suck beyond just how does this relate to feeding? Can this be an index for us as to what was happening in utero? Because we know that this is the first time we're really seeing that sensory motor system at play. And it's kind of giving us a window into the infant's developing nervous system. So it's telling us more. And can we use this as a metric of, okay, so now we know the baby has an altered suck. We think it's because of maybe exposures then how can we help this this baby or this child going forward in development? So really using this as like a biomarker. And when I say environmental, in that example, I'm really talking about toxicants. But again, a lot of my work recently has focused just on the volitional caregiver. I also, as I said, kind of earlier in our conversation about sensory development, I'm also very tuned to the sensory experience during the feed. So whether that's olfactory cues, visual cues, we did a fun study in my lab a few years ago where a baby was looking at like a PowerPoint and basically sitting in a little stationary rocker chair and would look at a picture of a woman versus a picture of a car. And we would measure the look duration for these two different visual items and then we offered the baby the pacifier. And so we found that the baby sucked more when looking at the picture of the woman, which is very intuitive and kind of like we were talking about just like with the rocking and the gentle gliding. It, this is all very clear. Like, obviously, it makes sense that if a baby sees an image of a woman versus a car, they may suck more. But these are just very simple things that can be done. Can there be a picture of a mom at a daycare setting to help with the feeding process or the caregiver? Or, you know, can this be something that's implemented in, you know, cardiac ICUs for these kids who are older and having feeding challenges, but have that rich connection with the mother or the caregiver or, you know, whoever is holding that infant is what I like to say and taking care of that infant. So, I mean, I think these are low-hanging fruit that can be explored, but I think just really trying to think of the system as a whole, because 
you know, the non-nutritive sect is just one part, but again, an important window into the larger pieces at hand. So when you're talking about the pheromones and the smells or the smells in the room, the olfactory system, I had a patient years ago who had, he has Down syndrome and his mother was an ER physician and she exclusively breastfed and they worked hard. It was her second. They worked hard and got a beautiful latch and he had a fantastic latch at breast, but refused all other anythings, no bottles, no nothing from anybody other than mom. And mom was going back to work and it was just dad. And dad was like, I am struggling. He will refuse to eat, period. And I had read an article on pheromones, like the mother's pheromone being like, it was a research article about like how across all species. And I can't remember what they were studying now if it was, it was some small mammal that they were studying. And if the mother's milk versus another small mammal's express breast milk, the babies wouldn't take, or they would take more in volume if it was the pheromone that they knew. Right. And I can't remember it's cited somewhere anyways. So I was like, why don't we take the shirt? So if you've never been pregnant or been around someone who's breastfeeding, we leak. It's not like your boobs are a spigot that you can turn off. They just squirt at random points in times. And if another baby cries, sometimes your boobs are like, Hey, I'm going to feed you too. So like when you're breastfeeding, you're going to end up using your shirt or whatever's nearby to like catch and wipe. Right. So I suggested to the family and you know, the mom was a physician. So she, when I explained my thought process to her, she's like, this makes sense. So we took her shirt that she wore for two days. So it was her heart smelled like she wore that thing for two solid days. (laughs) And so we laid it on the dad's shoulder and had the bottle. Cause I met the dad at the door. He goes to hand me the baby, the shirt and the bottle. I was like, that is your wife. That is her boobs. That is her bottle and your baby. I'm here to coach you. (laughs) So like we sat down in his comfy chair and had the baby on the boppy pillow wrapped up comfy and put the shirt on. I kid you not that baby sighed, wholehearted sighed when it smelled his mama on that shirt and then latched onto the bottle. And all I could think of is this is a game changer for that kid. And that's what opened the door to that child learning to drink from a bottle and the stress in the family going down because he wasn't going to starve when mom wasn't there anymore. And actually something I neglected to say as part of that study, similarly, we gave moms this beautiful long black shirt to wear for three consecutive nights, like, and it was for breastfeeding caregivers. And then when they weren't wearing the shirts, they put them in like a hermetically sealed bag, but this was all in the presence of olfaction. So no, I think that's very potent. The lovies, all of those things that, you know, can help to kind of pair these things. So, you know, these things would naturally be paired if you think about even the scent, the mother's milk versus a other mother's milk study has definitely been done in the human model too, and shown to be quite effective. So I think, you know, I tell my students all the time in the neuroscience class I teach, you know, we have these different senses. It's not that we just care about speech, language, hearing, swallowing, you know, all of these things work together and completely you know, it's not siloed. And so when you're even doing adult work in the ICU, I mean, I think really trying to understand the environment, what's happening, you know, what is at play here. And I think that in some situations, 
we think the default should be no stimulation and sometimes it should be stimulation. And I think that there's this really cool series of papers by Frostig where they took rat models and after a stroke gently, like a huge MCA stroke with the rat, they gently stimulated the rat's whiskers. And if it was done in a certain time period, there was a ton of recovery in the brain. And I think just thinking of, you know, what can we be doing in the most gentlest and most appropriate, of course, way to be stimulating these neurons, especially in a developmental way, because, you know, they would be stimulated otherwise. So the deprivation, I think, can be really catastrophic at times. Yes. I have a cousin who I remember my grandma saying when she went out to visit, it was her newborn. She goes, the house is so quiet. They won't let anybody make any noise. And she goes, that kid is going to struggle because they got to know that the world has noise. And, you know, her little one, there was an acclimation period because they grew up in such a quiet, like it was solemn, like a library. And that, you know. Well, and that's what's happening in the NICUs right now. So, you know, everyone moved to the individual room, which is fantastic for other senses, like dimming the lights and quiet. So you're not hearing, you know, tons of beeps and chaotic noise, but no noise isn't better. And what they're showing is that, you know, that you almost need maybe like a small pod or, or two kids to a room, or at least the people who are visiting need to, you know, or what if there's no visitor? I mean, there's so many challenges with that from a neurodevelopmental standpoint, because in the chaotic open bay NICU, you were at least hearing maybe nurses talking to each other. And again, to what degree with the beeps and if you're in an isolate, et cetera. But, you know, again, that has been really been the model of the shift from, you know, saving the early and young babies to how can we preserve their neurodevelopment? Have you heard of the podcast called 99% Invisible? No. It is my favorite podcast. It's the history of design and the history of design of literally everything. And they go so far, like they had an episode on the history of design of cities and the innate sexism and the layout of cities because they were designed to get a male from point A to point B the quickest. But when they study women, female patterns or caregiver patterns through a city, how it's so counterintuitive because where they need to go in the course of their day, it adds time in because it's not a direct route. Like cities were designed to go from a house to a job, but not a grocery store or a school or a park. And anyways, they have an entire episode dedicated to the newest research on the design of sounds in an ER or the design of sounds in a critical care unit and how they're trying to change the beeps and the monitors to the sounds of a heartbeat or melodies. And they're showing that the nurses' stress levels are going down and that patients are having shorter, healthier stays. Like they're getting healthier quicker and leaving where they're doing these trials. And I just kind of, guys, seriously, I love Roman Mars and the 99% Invisible. Also, he's just got this great nerdy voice. It's fantastic. Oh, yeah. I'm going to have to check it out. Yeah. Dude, they just hit their 500th episode and it's probably back in there in like the 150s but like okay it's i'll look it up 
Okay, I literally live 10 miles away from where the chewy tubes and Z-vibes of the world are made. So like I'm in the epicenter for like non-speech oral motor exercises and Dr. Malandrecki's research. It's like, I just want to shout that research from the mountaintops because we don't need to wake up a patient's face. Like it's woke. (laughs) So like, where is the research for pediatrics going? Help. (laughs) Right. And so it's interesting. So when we kind of first started our discussion today, you know, you were like kind of taught the negative aspects of non-nutritive suck. And I think some people think of non-nutritive suck as a non-speech task that you're doing to, and are, is the goal to elicit, you know, this and have people be better at speech because, you know, then I can use non-nutritive suck as a therapy to make people, you know, their muscle, you know, do different things and use them in the ways that you're referring to here. And I I think that's definitely not the case. And when I think of non-nutritive suck, I think of it as, you know, one piece of the feeding puzzle that is low hanging fruit to try to work on, to try to, that I think is also, like I said, a window to telling us more. But so when I said I did this vestibular chair thing for my dissertation, It took a year to build this chair to make it be at the precise angles and rates and accelerations that were typical of infant breathing patterns. You know, I didn't just take a vibrating toothbrush and throw it on a child's face. You know what I mean? And so when I even look at the gentle rockers and gliders, the Mamaru and all of these other things, you know, I just, there's so many products in our field that are just not evidence-based. And I worry because, you know, the implications are big. Like, so what I found in my vestibular study was that the fastest accelerations of the chair that I had the babies in with me and you'll have to look up, I'll send you the article because it's, you can see the picture of the chair, but it's, you know, all developmentally appropriate, but those babies increased their respiratory rate, which was great. And, but like, is that needed for everybody? And if we knew that acceleration did that for everybody, maybe that's not a good thing. So I think what we don't know, we don't know. And I think manufacturers and different companies are always looking to just kind of push that space, push the cell And I think it's our job to say, hmm, I'm not sure if that makes the most sense physiologically or what people would be doing with their infants soon after birth naturally. Mm -hmm. And yeah, like you said, the face doesn't need to be awoken. And I think, how can we be doing these things appropriately, respectfully? And another worry I, I have, especially in the pediatric feeding space, in a way that really moves our field forward and not backward. We want to be respected in this space. We want to err on the side of evidence. We want to, you know, not add further confusion. We want to, you know, be a member of the deciding team. And I think to do that, when we do approaches that aren't evidence-based, it calls some of those steps into question. So I think that's so important. My concern is, well, I got a couple I would love to see stronger position statements and guiding statements on this nationally. And just, I hear from my colleagues that are clinicians that, well, it looks like it's working. You know, they're biting more is something that I hear, or they're doing this more. And I'm like, 
okay, well, that's fantastic that you have a better bite. But what happens when you go to put a bolus in? Because those central pattern generators for suck, swallow, and breathe, if you've learned mastication and isolation, you have not taught the body how to integrate that with the bolus, how to manipulate, handle the bolus, and then how to safely swallow it without having premature spillage or having a significant amount of residue, piecemeal deglutition. I mean, like those are... And it also gets back to the world of PFD even though we've been around and it's been around for a while, but because it's not being specifically taught at university Mm -hmm. levels, like in its own respected entity. And I get it. The CASA standards, the big nine curriculum is tight. So like having spent time at a university and observed the, cause I was on the clinic side, but observing this part of the faculty meetings, like I understand the volume of course material that has to be taught, but it's doing a disservice to these patients that are surviving today that didn't survive two years ago, that didn't survive five years ago. And we have another generation of clinicians that are not getting taught at an academic level the bare basics the way that we need to, to get them out in the fields. And then health spells, we don't have enough clinicals. So folks, if you're a clinician in the world of PFD, please become a clinical supervisor because that's what we learn. And I mean, we don't have enough pediatric feeding researchers either. So even if we wanted to teach that those courses in all of our programs, it's not possible. There's not many pediatric feeding researchers that are SLP based. And I think that's a big challenge. And then, yeah, I think the supervision sites and the need, you know, ASHA recognizes the need for additional training in this area. And I did an article on this a handful of years back, just kind of surveying SLPs working in this area. And, you know, it, it echoes everything we've discussed that there's, you know, people like put simply people who received a separate course felt more prepared to work with this population, which is not surprising, but validating the importance of getting this type of material before you graduate. Mm -hmm. Our field's so big that it's very, I don't know, sometimes I think we just need to tack on a third year of grad school and have people focus. Or another semester. I feel like another semester would allow for such specialty or nuanced that is, or like, I mean, I do think I got a lot done with that intercession class, adding things like that, that are like little pop-ons or add-ins. The other thing I would say is where I think the field is going is that we've always kind of trailed behind the motor system. When we talk about like the gross motor system versus the fine motor system and a lot of the technologies, a lot of the underpinnings of different theories and different practices, maybe we're done in the motor realm first or with PT first. And I think you know, Dr. Malandronki's work really follows to see what, you know, what was done in the motor. What can we be learning from these other professions that maybe are a little bit older than ours? And, you know, her lab does a fantastic job of doing that and trying to generalize some of those ideas and notions into the SLP world. And I think, you know, as virtual reality and gaming and things like that become more and more the norm, you know, I think that's what we're going to see in feeding too. How can we be better preparing caregivers before the baby is born, before the baby is adopted, before, you know, the baby is here? Whoever is going to be taking care of that baby, how are they being prepared? How are they dealing with their underlying psychosocial 
are they aware that the phthalates in their lives may be affecting their non-nutritive suck? I think the education surrounding the feeding really needs to happen sooner. And that's what the data show, particularly for breastfeeding, is that most people have their intention to breastfeed before the baby is there. And, you know, of course, things can change that. But if you're not intending on breastfeeding, and again, we've discussed that I'm not, you know, fed is fed, right? But, you know, just having those conversations early and having this be a part of prenatal care, I think is really a first step and where to go. I have a good friend who I did interviews for that intercession course. And I have a good friend who had preemie twins. And I remember going over to her house and helping her feed her baby. And I mean, something as simple as a breastfeeding stool. I'm like, use this to hold your legs up at a certain, you know, and she was like, that changed my life. Everything. Yeah. You know, she's like, I just didn't, I was so uncomfortable. I had, you know, the lack of, you know, she's like, I could do it in the hospital and I could do it at the visits, but no one was coming to my home. And that's where I realized I could do it in their chairs. I couldn't do it in mine. And it took, you know, you to come to my house to be like, have you thought about getting a stool? And she's like, that's the simplest, most effective thing that anyone has ever done. And I just think that there's such a disconnect between you know, and when you're at the NICU versus the PICU versus the pediatricians, you're getting all of these different areas of expertise. And so the one kind of primary person there is going to be the caregiver. So how can we provide that person more knowledge to make these decisions and where to go? You know, a lot of people don't know, like, you know, my friend who is high risk pregnancy and knew she'd have preemie twins was never told, like, there's a high likelihood that these preemies are going to have feeding challenges. She didn't even know that SLPs did this. She's like, I have no clue about this field. I had no clue that this was to be expected, you know? So I think that's another piece of the education. That gets back to community engagement and opportunities for us, those of us that are out in the field, reaching out and engaging. Okay. Also, you were talking about the stool and I can't, I almost snorted laugh so hard. I had the world's best breastfeeding rocker. And my husband called it the nut cruncher. He's like, I cannot sit here. It like, it sat me up at such an angle, but it was the perfect breastfeeding chair I've ever had. Like it was amazing. And it was this rocker glider combo. And my dad sat in it and he goes, that is hard on one's bits and pieces. And I was like, but like, that's exactly what my husband said. So like, but as a breastfeeding mom, oh my God, it elevated, it lifted, it puts you at the right angle. Oh no. I mean, it's just, I mean, but that's those simple things, right. And it's, it's that, it's a thing. It is that thing. And I feel like it's that kind of self-care piece too. Like, I mean, not that a stool seems like self-care, but it is. It is. support. If you've ever used, what is the thing that helps you poop and you put it under your seat on the toilet? That is self-care after children as well. So <laughs> pelvic floor therapy and the poop stool, get those as well. If you're in your early 20s listening to us, this is your future. <laughs> so, oh my God. Okay. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing so much of your knowledge. And if folks want to learn more from you, can you tell them what labs to look at or where they can find you or your research? Absolutely. Well, I wanted to also say, as we know, we're coming up on ASHA. So my lab has several presentations at ASHA. I'm excited to do a group collaborative on pediatric feeding and a motor primer. So that is something to look for. 
with Anna Miles and Georgia Meljanki, Rachel Arkenberg, among others. So yeah, she asked me for a video. I have to get a oh, video yes. of her. Yes. Perfect. Yes. I was actually going to ask you after this. So good job, <laughs> Rachel. Good job. So my lab's website is snl.sites.northeastern.edu. And you can also just look me up at Northeastern and, and there'll be a link to my lab's website. So that's the best way to learn more about the lab. I'm always happy to share publications or ideas or, you know, chat via email too. And you can also find my email on the Northeastern site. So I think that's probably the easiest way to kind of follow our work. But thank you so much for having me on. And it was really fun to chat with you today about all things, pacifiers, bottles, feedings, and all the other factors, right? Yes. Excellent. Thank you so much. Everybody, if you're listening, check us out. Come visit, please. I mean, Dr. Zimmerman and myself have volunteered under the tutelage of Dr. Memory Goza for the PFD planning committee. This is all volunteers. It's all volunteer work to pull off this PFD track because the goal is to expedite the research to practice so that at the end of the day, we're all there for improving patient and caregiver outcomes. So please, please, please come to Lisha. I hope to see y'all there. And, you know, we love it when you follow us on First Bite Podcast on Instagram and do the super cheesy, much appreciated five-star review. And don't forget to check out Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders that I wrote and is on Amazon and is eligible for 1.35 hashes CEUs through speechtherapypd.com. So I think I checked all of the to-do boxes. There it is. All right, folks. Talk to you soon. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the alliance? It's you. The alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep 
Monday through Monday actually as well. Here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and Skisha. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures. All right. So I receive compensation for first bite presentations, as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks y'all. Bye.